Mary. Listen to your mother. Think about the times you've heard that phrase or something like it. Think about your mother or those in your life who've acted as your mom. Obey your mom. What did mom say? Where's your mother? Yeah, you could do that, but what would mom say? Mom, as a rather ditzy dad of three young girls, I find myself using phrases like that a whole lot. In my frequent moments of fatherly confusion, defaulting to what Andrew would say, my wife, it's usually a pretty good call in most situations. Dorothy, she's my oldest, she's four years old. Dorothy, I know you want to take off your clothes and paint your body blue, but it's, it's almost dinner time, and something tells me that mom's not going to like that. Okay. I'm exaggerating a little bit about my helplessness as a dad, but I have my moments. We all need mothers to help us to be properly oriented to what's real and true and good. I have multiple mothers. Early in life, my parents divorced and they remarried other people. At an early age, I learned to have two mothers, Janice, my mom, and Misty, my stepmom. Later in life, my best friend's mom, Linda, became a mother to me, especially when I lived with their family summer before going to college. When I married Andrea 10 years ago, I gained her mom, Lisa, as my mom. And I came to cherish her not just as my wife's mom, but as my mom too. I've had at least four moms and probably way more if you count friends, family, grandmothers, aunts, who've had a formative maternal influence on my life. And I've recently realized that I have another mother. And what's even stranger is that this new mother is actually your mother too. I'm talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. In this series, characters, we've been looking at the lives of those who have gone before us, those who show us what it means to trust God. One of the things we confess in the Apostles' Creed is that we believe in the communion of saints. What does that mean, communion of saints? What's amazing to me is that in a very real sense, we have relationships with these people that we're studying who've gone before us. Because we're all in Christ. We're united to Christ. Even those who are long dead and who are now with Christ are still in him and we are still with them, in a sense. In fact, it's because these folks that we're studying were in Christ, because Christ was in them, that we can then look at their lives and, and discover what does it mean for us to be in Christ? What does it mean for us to have faith today? They died long ago, but, but they have a living relationship with the living one, our Savior Jesus, who's alive right now, who's interceding for us in heaven. That's what the communion of saints means, and we have this relationship with them in Christ. So we're learning today about the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're linked by faith to Mary, not simply because she was Jesus' mom, but because she trusted in her son Jesus as her Savior, as her Lord, just like we do. 
Just like the lives of the other saints we've pointed us to, have pointed us to Jesus, so too Mary. But Mary points us to Jesus, though, as our mother, not just as Jesus' mother. We'll talk about what that means. So it's December 1st. This is a sermon about Mary. You might expect that I'm headed right for the Christmas story, but I'm not. Why? What season are we in? We just began a new season, and the season is not winter. Anybody know? Advent. What in the world is Advent? Growing up, I, I heard about Advent, and it just kind of went over my head, and I, you know, whatever that is. And then there was a the next stage where I began to think, okay, Advent is, it's just a fancy word for Christmas, because Advent, it's based on the Latin for coming, so the coming of Christ. Okay, so growing up Southern Baptist, I thought the denominations who talk about Christmas as Advent were just snobs. You know, they just wanted to, have you, have you had your Advent candle lit or whatever, okay? Advent. And I was just thinking, okay, whatever. It's Christmas. Use the word Christmas. It has Christ in it, okay? But in fact, I was ignorant as I am frequently. The first coming of Jesus as a human being that we celebrate in Christmas is in fact not the primary focus of Advent. The primary focus in Advent is looking forward to Jesus' second coming. The focus is on Jesus' coming again in judgment and in salvation. It's a time to remember the goal of our lives. And the goal of our lives is not finishing school, or getting a job, or getting married, or having kids, or being successful, or surviving an illness, or getting a COVID vaccine, or being able to wantonly socialize with whomever you want without social distancing. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, it's not living your dreams. The goal of our lives is eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we remember in Advent. All of our ultimate desires and longings are fully satisfied only in this end and in no other. That's a striking thing to think about. Advent is a time to remember that our life is a pilgrimage. It's a time to call out with our lives in the midst of pain, suffering, despair, anxiousness, frustration, come Lord Jesus, in the hope that the end that he's bringing is our greatest good. That's what Advent's about. And of course, that leads into the Christmas story because we remember Jesus' first coming, which is in a way the answer for all of our longings. Because it's Advent, I want to look at an episode of Mary's life that shows us what it means to live with hope in the face of pain and suffering and despair. In it, Mary's pointing us to Jesus, showing us what it means to be a faithful pilgrim on the way of the cross in hope that God's love conquers death. I also thought that this episode was exactly what we need right now in our pandemic purgatory. Are you tired and anxious in all of this mess? Are you angry about the suffering you see around you? Are you unsettled and uncertain about how God is ultimately going to work all these circumstances out for good like his word promises to us? Are you longing, waiting for God, looking for encouragement, not seeing it? Listen to your mother. Turn with me to John chapter 19.
I'm going to read an extended passage here from John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that Scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Use your imagination to put yourself beside Mary in this scene. As she stands beside Jesus. It's only this passage from John's gospel that explicitly puts Mary right in the middle of the action in the crucifixion. Only here do we see Mary standing right next to the cross. I mean, she's right there. She's right next to it. cross is probably eye level. These moments for her are the pinnacle of a night and a day from hell. These moments are probably the pinnacle of years of worry and concern over exactly what would happen to her son as he embraced his calling from God. Mary's been awake all night, all day, watching as her son was tried and brutally executed for blasphemy. She's seen her son betrayed by close friends, bound as a prisoner, sentenced to death, his body ripped open with whips, his brow crowned with torturous thorns. He's been mocked and slapped in the face. And finally, she watched as soldiers drove nails into her son's hands and feet to anchor him on the cross on which he would die slowly. Now, I ask you to imagine it. When I ask myself to imagine it, I, I shut down. I, at this point, I, I don't want to imagine it. I can't handle that. I can't handle imagining it. It's painful to put yourself next to Mary in this moment. But if we're trying to pay attention to Mary's life, it's important to try to see it for what it is, 
see this scene for what it is, rather than try to gloss over it. I found this following painting that's been behind me helpful in paying attention to Mary at this moment in her life. If you've been in my classes, we've looked at it uh, in terms of Jesus' experience, but take a look at Mary in this in this scene as well. This is part of the massive Eisenheim altarpiece. It was originally designed 500 years ago to sit in a chapel in a monastery in Eisenheim, Germany. The monastery had a a hospital for which it would care for people. Can you imagine what Mary would have felt as she was standing next to Jesus, looking on his mangled body, listening to his cries, listening to his labored breathing? Can you imagine her anger, her pain, her despair, her anxiousness. John tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion by giving us two scenes right at the foot of the cross. We just, we just read them. First, right after they stripped Jesus naked and nailed him up, the soldiers divide the spoils of their victim, his clothes. They probably fight over who gets the sandals and who gets the robes and who gets the belt. And they recognize that Jesus' tunic, which is like a long undershirt, so to speak, uh, they, it's, been, it's been carefully made. This is the item that would have touched Jesus' skin uh, underneath his clothing. It's not something that you just tear up for the fabric. Scholars have wondered whether this is John trying to tell us something about Jesus because Old Testament priestly figures have seamless clothing, and so maybe John's trying to make a statement about this. I think that might be missing the point a little bit. Who's the person who's been responsible for clothing Jesus? Who knows the shape and the dimensions of his body. Who would joyfully take the time to make a tunic for Jesus that fit just so? Who's standing right there? Mary's standing right there. Mary's standing right there as she watches soldiers bicker over clothing that likely she made for Jesus. In the moment, we shouldn't imagine Mary pretending it's all no big deal. You know, Jesus said he'll be resurrected in three days Guys, we just need to get through this. God walks, works all things together for good. Keep thinking positive thoughts. Keep smiling. It'll, it'll be okay. No, Mary is anchored in the painful reality in front of her. She's not pretending it doesn't exist, that Jesus doesn't exist, that this moment is not real. This was a cataclysmic event that you can't prepare for mentally. You can't Uh, prep for it. In this moment, Mary's brought to the end of herself. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mary's crying that too. And Jesus knows his mother's with him. He does something remarkable. Uh, Just read this. I'm just going to read this passage again. When When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. What's Jesus doing with this? Jesus is essentially taking care of his mother. He knows that he's dying. He's providing a home for her to go to, assuming his father, Joseph, had died, assuming his brothers weren't around. The beloved disciple responds in obedience to take care of Mary, now and in the future, to make sure that Mary has a home to go to, that she won't go hungry, she won't be lost, she won't be abandoned. On a historical level, I think that's what's happening here. But it seems that John, the gospel writer, wants us to see this in a bigger perspective, this moment. You see, the beloved disciple in the gospel of John is never named 
We know he self-identifies as the author of the gospel. And we know the church later ascribed this gospel to John. But we don't get that identification between the beloved disciple and John in the gospel itself. The beloved disciple isn't named because I think he's the ideal disciple, often in contrast to Peter. The beloved disciple at the Last Supper asked Jesus who will betray him as he's resting peacefully beside Jesus. Peter and the other disciples are totally clueless as to who will betray him, but ultimately they all will in some sense. The beloved disciple stands with Jesus during his trial in in the high priest's court while Peter was outside. The beloved disciple helps Peter get inside, but as soon as Peter comes in, the first person who asks Peter about his association with Jesus, Peter takes the opportunity to deny Jesus, and he leaves. The beloved disciple is the only male disciple explicitly mentioned as present at the crucifixion. The others ran away. The beloved, disciples, the beloved disciple is the first one who recognizes that it's the resurrected Lord Jesus on the shore who just told them to cast the net on the other side, who provided for their miraculous catch. John is trying to show us a model of discipleship in this life of the beloved disciple. Ultimately, what's most important about him is that he is beloved. He abides in the love of Jesus, just like that teaching of Jesus in John chapter 15. He lives out of that love. And here's where things get interesting. If the beloved disciple is a model or a type of all disciples of Jesus, y'all in this room, y'all online, then that means John's trying to teach us something about our discipleship every time he's mentioned. And if the beloved disciple adopts Mary as his mother, acknowledging himself as her son, then John seems to be saying that all disciples should do the same in some sense. Now, you could say, okay, well then the lesson is, like the beloved disciple, we need to take care of our parents, or we need to take care of widows. And I think that's an entirely valid and appropriate lesson to take. But I think John, the gospel writer, is wanting us to see something more specific. I think it's talking about acknowledging that Mary is our mother in Christ. Among disciples of Jesus, we look to Mary as a primary model of what it means to follow Jesus, her son, in faith. We need to listen to her life as our mother in faith, just like we need to listen to our other mothers. Now, at this point, your heresy alarms might be going off, or maybe they've been going off for minutes now. I kindly ask you to silence them and hear me out, okay? From the beginning of the church, Christians have adored Mary, and they've looked to her as a foundational witness to discipleship. However, I'm not saying something like, Mary's our co-redemptor alongside Jesus. Even Pope Francis says that's foolishness. I'm not saying Mary was sinless. But I think failing to acknowledge Mary's witness as a foundational witness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is also dangerous. So what do I mean? Why is Mary's example, so important. Why do we need to listen to her like she's our mother? Okay, so first of all, Mary shows us in a unique way what it means to follow Jesus in the face of suffering. Isn't Jesus the ultimate example of this? Yes, absolutely, yes. 
But just like the apostles, Mary is a normative human example of following Jesus on the way of the cross in faith. Mary's path of discipleship meant giving up the miracle child that God had given her. The child she cherished, she nurtured, she taught, she, su- she supported, she protected nearly her whole life. Unlike in the story of Abraham and Isaac, an angel doesn't come and intervene and stop the violence. Mary was faithful not just at the big moment when Gabriel appeared when she was young, but in the silent years that we wonder about and Jesus' development, his growth, when she continued teaching, reminding Jesus whom God said he was, protecting, caring. For all of Jesus' warnings about what would happen in Jerusalem, Mary did not run away when the moment came for her to be present with her son as he was killed. She shared in Jesus' suffering, rather than grasping for any number of excuses for why she shouldn't be there. Mary's path of discipleship led to her own death, in a way, as she was present for Jesus' death. Look at Mary's skin in this painting. Look at her, compare the skin of her face and the skin of her hands. The skin of her face looks a whole lot like Jesus' skin. It's, 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 it's uh, as though Mary's dying or she's dead. All the colors drained out of it. God called Mary to a life that would not lead to her own success, fame, comfort, security, and fulfillment, but to a life of emptying, self-giving faith. She saw it through, trusting in God and pouring out her life for her son, knowing that he was not just her son, but her, but her Savior, the one who bore her sin, too. It's this hope in the face of death that's at the heart of what the Christian life means. Mary endured the cross by hoping and trusting in Jesus. The form of that hope, that faith, looked like this. It was not self-confident assurance that everything's going to be fine, but it's a terrified white-knuckle grip on her son's presence in the midst of agony. It's the hope that Jesus is here, even here, paving a way forward for her. For her and for, her, for others' salvation. Even though she can't see the way forward. Her eyes are closed. She can't see the way forward beyond her grief and her distress. If Jesus, the suffering one, is our Savior, and if Mary's our mother, when we find ourselves in similar situations of distress, clinging in similar ways to hope, we know we're walking the same path that our family has walked. We're not alone. Because Jesus bore the sin of everyone, there's no experience of suffering that Jesus does not know firsthand. In every instance of intense suffering we encounter in our lives, Jesus has arrived there before us. He's present there with us, holding us together, just like he was holding Mary together. Because he's paved a way through death, we know this suffering is not the end of the story. We see this hope again in the last scene in which Mary's recorded explicitly in the Bible. In Acts chapter 1, after she had seen her resurrected son ascend into heaven, imagine that, Mary's with all the other disciples in Jerusalem. She's devoted to prayer. She's seeking after what God would have her to do next. She's still seeking the presence of her son. Can you imagine the wounds she would have? after this experience, and yet those wounds are not the last word. Even though those wounds would likely have changed her forever, she continues in faith. She's likely there on the day of Pentecost. She's filled with the Spirit, 
She's sent out to tell others about her son. She cared for the beloved disciple and for, for others, for the apostles, as her children. She continued to pour out her life that God had, had given her. But Mary's life ends in obscurity. She doesn't become one of the all-star apostles who leads thousands and thousands to faith. Mary's life disrupts our attempts to make the Christian life about our present success, our fame, our gain. And by looking to Mary as our mother in faith, we remember that the normal Christian life is the path to the cross. Christian life is not ultimately defined by our feelings of peace, comfort, success, and clarity about the future. Those who walk the path of the cross with Jesus have chosen not to run away from the difficulties we face, but to cling to Jesus in a saving presence in the midst of them and to pour out our lives in love for Jesus and for, for those he loves. So that's why we need to listen to Mary as our mother in faith, because she shows us uniquely what discipleship in the face of suffering means. That's the first reason. The second reason is similar. Second reason why it's important that we listen to Mary's life as our mother in faith is that in doing so, we find our family at the cross. Jesus' last major work on the cross in John's telling is to establish this new family of Mary and the beloved disciple, a family based on Jesus' cross-shaped love for them. In the text, it says, after he forms this family, Jesus knows that he's completed everything. He's no, he knows that he's finished it. Forming this family was Jesus's intention. So maybe you're hearing Mary's story and you're thinking, man, the pain is amped up to 11 and I'm not there listening to Mary's story. I'm, I'm dealing with frustration. I'm tired from COVID, but I'm not watching my son die. I, I know that, okay, I'm not enduring the same thing that Mary's enduring. Okay. Well, you are the beloved disciple. We as members of this new family are called to care for and support our brothers and sisters as we together are walking this path of the cross. We don't run away from those or who are in the grips of grief and distress and anger and pain and despair. Just like Mary doesn't leave Jesus, just like the beloved disciple doesn't abandon Mary, not only in the big moment of the crucifixion, but in the ordinary life afterwards, so too we are called not to abandon others who are struggling, even when it's painful to stay, even when it's painful to listen empathetically, even when it's painful to, to enter into someone else's suffering. Just like the beloved disciple practically cared for Mary in her grief and afterwards, we too walk the path of the cross faithfully when we support each other for the long haul in enduring family relationships. This is the gospel at work. So who knows what's going to happen the rest of this academic year on campus? We're doing our best to maintain a new normal, but we don't know what's going to happen. Don't abandon the friendships that you are making here just because it's hard. Just because they have to quarantine or go home, just because you're anxious or you're busy or you let all of your assignments cloud out everything else in life, don't abandon others just because it's painful to be present and help others who are suffering. Rather, pay attention to your, Mary, to your mother Mary's life as she points you to Jesus. Jesus. 
the one who suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. Beloved disciples, listen to your mother.